Well, I do want to say as we begin this morning again how good it is to be back with you. Thank you for the many prayers. Uh, so many of you have come up to us and, and told us that you were praying specifically for us that the vacation would be restful and that we would be healthy on it. Uh, and God has seen fit to answer all of those prayers abundantly, that we have been healthy and we have enjoyed a good time as a family and a good time of rest, good time of seeing uh, dear friends as well. And I'm also grateful and want to say thanks to Ron and to Rob for faithfully preaching God's word over the last two Sundays, was able to listen to those sermons online. And it's just an encouragement to have men that can faithfully handle God's word and teach it well to us and point us to Jesus and the gospel. What a blessing that is, because the issue is not God's word from any particular person. The issue is God's word being proclaimed and Christ being proclaimed. And those brothers did a great job and put a lot of effort into it. I'm grateful for their efforts. Uh, very grateful for their efforts. Well, we're looking at this passage. I read 3 to 14, verses 3 to 14, just now, but we're going to most especially be looking at verses 13 and 14 this morning. As you know, if you've been with us, we've been working our way through this section of Scripture. And you can tell as you look at verses 13 and 14 that it's focused in a particular way on the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning, and particularly one aspect of His ministry in our lives. And here's the thing, it's very easy to get our doctrine of the Holy Spirit wrong. What I mean by that is this, some Christians seem almost too focused on the Holy Spirit. But, but then when you look a little deeper, you see they're not really focused on the Holy Spirit himself as a person, they're, they're more focused on what we would call the sign gifts of the Spirit. And so there's a lot of excitement about things like tongues and prophesying and workings of miracles, and things like that, healing and whatnot. And they get incredibly excited about that aspect of the Spirit's work, but they seem to overlook the more normal, and I would say deeper aspects of the work of the Spirit, which are things like illuminating our minds to understand God's Word, and convicting us of sin, and testifying that we are the children of God, that ministry of assurance in our lives, and then interceding for us as we pray with groanings that are so deep that we, we can't fathom, and yet he knows our needs and he is interceding for us, those deeper works. But then, on the other hand, and if I'm you know, falling one way or the other, this is probably the error that I fall into more, is that other Christians seem to neglect the Holy Spirit almost entirely. So these believers, just like the first, they love God's word, they, they love God, they, they pray, uh, they think about Christ's work on the cross regularly, but as they go through their lives, they pay precious little attention to the Holy Spirit, to his person and to his works. And for them, it's as if the Holy Spirit doesn't really exist, or at least that we could just kind of get by fine without him. This tendency to neglect the Holy Spirit is why J.I. Packer spoke of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as the Cinderella of Christian doctrines. But of course, it shouldn't be that way. Because the Holy Spirit is God, very God. The Holy Spirit is co-equal with the Father and the Son. And, and as you study the Bible, you see that all of the blessings that we have received, we receive because the Holy Spirit gives those to us. So it comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. We receive every spiritual blessing that has been accomplished for us in Christ and planned for us by the Father because our salvation is a Trinitarian salvation. And we've seen that as we've looked at this section. We've seen how each person of the Trinity is involved in this great work of redemption that we've been focusing on. 
and involved in blessing us with these great spiritual blessings that we have received as Christians. So this morning, we're going to spend more time looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in these two verses. We're going to focus on one particular ministry, the sealing of the Spirit. Talk about how the Spirit of God indwells believers, sealing them, indwelling them, demonstrating that they belong to God. And we're going to see that that is a big deal, a wonderful ministry and a wonderful blessing in our lives. So we are continuing the study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, For the past several weeks, we've been in this section, verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1, Uh, We have broken down this sentence in the original language. It's just one sentence that contains 202 words. It's a a long sentence. It's a profound sentence. It's a sentence that overflows, as you can see, with praise to God. It's a glorious passage. So let's just kind of take a moment and think about where we've been over the past several weeks as we've studied this. And verse 3 there, take a look at your copy of God's Word. Uh, Verse 3, you see how Paul begins. He begins with this wonderful word, blessed. That God is this glorious, happy, altogether worthy God who is worthy of our praise. So praise be to God is the idea there in verse 3. And he's praising God for the spiritual blessings. For the fact that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's no more for God to give us. He's given us everything. And then he goes on to list these blessings for us. So in verses 4 to 6, we talked about the blessing of election. That before eternal times, God chose his people for salvation. And then in verses 7 and 8, we looked at the blessing of redemption. Uh, And it's this idea of being brought out of slavery. It's most especially in this passage, the idea that we have been forgiven for all of our sins. Past, present, and future. So if you struggled with sins this week, that's where your hope is. That you've been redeemed. And the Christ has accomplished a great salvation for you. Verses 9 and 10, we saw the blessing of spiritual insight into God's plan for all things. So as believers, we don't have to go through our lives afraid. Uh, we don't have to worry that somehow you know, God's going to lose or that we're going to lose. We know that God wins, and we know that we win with him. Now, three weeks ago, we looked at verses 11 and 12, and we saw this spiritual blessing of a heavenly inheritance. And it's the idea that believers, Christians, really born-again people, well, they have an inheritance ahead of them, uh, that we are heirs of heaven, that for eternal ages, forever and ever and ever, we're going to live in a perfect world where there's no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more death, no more grief. All of that will be done away because the old things will be no more in that happy land. And we'll live there forever. And God himself will be the treasure. God himself will be the center of that world. He is ultimately our inheritance, and we will see him face to face, blessed with every spiritual blessing. Well, there's one more blessing that we want to look at in this passage, verses 13 to 14. This final spiritual blessing of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. See, that when believers are saved, they receive the Holy Spirit of God who lives within them, demonstrating that they belong to God, that they are genuinely the sons and daughters of God. And here's the thing. There's no higher privilege than that God would dwell within us. 
would live within us. And we're going to study this great blessing, this high privilege, by asking three questions. If you have the handout you received as you came through the door, you'll see those questions before you as we work our way through this passage this morning. So three questions from verses 13 and 14. First, what does it mean that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit? We'll see that in verse 13. And number two, when were we sealed with the Holy Spirit? We'll again see that in verse 13. And then why does the Holy Spirit indwell believers? And we'll see that as we study verse 14 together. Let's look at that first question then this morning. What does it mean that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised spirit. Now look at the first part of verse 13 and look at the last part of verse 13. You put those two together, you see the main point of this verse. Let me read it for you. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who's him? Well, as you study through this passage, you see that over and over and over, Paul says, in him, in him, in Christ. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. This is the Son. It is our union with Christ that is the context for the sealing that we're going to talk about this morning. It is how we are joined to Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in that same way. In him, in Christ, we are sealed by the Spirit. And then look, there's that you, you also. So who's the you now? Before he's been saying we but all of a sudden, now he changes over to you and says, you also. Well, who's you also? Well, these are these Ephesian believers who were predominantly Gentiles. And the other believers who were predominantly Gentiles in the churches around Ephesus. And the gospel came first to uh, Jewish people at Pentecost. And, and they heard the gospel and they repented and believed. And so the, it seemed like it was going to be this Jewish thing. And many of the Jews felt like it was only going to be a Jewish thing but then the mystery of God is revealed, and now you see that God's plan has always been that it would be both Jews and Gentiles brought together into one people in Christ. So who's the you also? Well, it's Gentiles then. That These Gentiles, these non-Jews, would also receive this blessing of being sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that means something significant. One commentator put it this way. He said that that means that in the kingdom of God, there are no second-class citizens which means to say we have all received the same privileges, which is to say that we all stand equal at the foot of the cross, all equally blessed through Christ. And notice how Paul refers to the Holy Spirit there in verse 13. He says the promised Holy Spirit. Literally, he says in the Holy Spirit of promise. So why does he call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of promise? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit was promised in the Old Testament. Uh, that God would pour out His Spirit on His people in the latter days. And that's what happened. That's what you saw happen in Pentecost or on the day of Pentecost. And here's the thing. That's what continues to happen as day by day, more and more men and women, boys and girls, are born again and receive the Spirit of God. This promised Spirit is poured out on them as well. And they are, as we will talk about in a moment, sealed and saved. So what does it mean then to be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When Paul's day, the seal was kind of an official mark of ownership or of authority. Sometimes the seal was made by branding with a hot iron, but most often, most commonly, the seal was made by taking hot wax and, and putting it on a document and then using a signet ring and kind of impressing the, the signet into the wax to form a seal 
demonstrating a number of different things. There were a number of uses for these seals in Paul's day. And here's the thing. Each one of those uses, they give us insight to what it means for us to have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So first, seals demonstrated ownership. So if a person wanted to demonstrate that a particular document, you could call it a will or some kind of official document, belonged to him, he would put hot wax on the document and then he would impress it with his signet, demonstrating that it belonged to him. Now that is a, a great picture. And I believe that that's the primary picture of what we're talking about when we speak of being sealed by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit seals a new believer, he is placing uh, a symbol, as it were, of ownership on his or her life. But here's the thing. The seal isn't anything material. Well, it's the Spirit himself. When we are given the Spirit, when the Spirit takes up residence within us, we are sealed by the Spirit, and that demonstrates that we belong to God. I'd like how John MacArthur put this. He said, when God gives us his Holy Spirit, it is as if he stamps us with a seal that reads, this person belongs to me and is an authentic citizen of my divine kingdom, a member of my divine family. And that's what you read throughout the New Testament as well. Matt Park actually read a passage from Romans 8 for us earlier in the sermon where it talks about this reality. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Well, in contrast, anyone who has the Spirit of Christ belongs to him and that's the idea this sealing with the spirit the spirit of god indwelling us is a demonstration that we no longer are our own but now we belong to god our creator and our redeemer so let that encourage you if you possess the holy spirit this morning you have been sealed by the very spirit of god it means something dramatic it means that god is not ashamed of you It means that God loves you. It means that God himself has taken up residence within you to demonstrate and to prove that you belong to him. And you will always belong to him. But there's more we can say about this sealing. There was a second use for seals in Paul's day. The second use was that it would guarantee a document's genuineness. So for an official document, again, you could probably think of something like a will, for it to be considered valid, it had to carry a seal, demonstrating who, who made it, who owned it, who has authority over it. And that's how you knew that the document was genuine, that it wasn't spurious, that it wasn't uh, false. Well, in the same way, only those who possess the Holy Spirit are genuine Christians. And that's a very controversial statement. But it's what the Bible teaches. And it's something that we have to understand. And listen, particularly if you're growing up in a Christian home, you say you're a young person, child, teenager, you need to understand that not everyone who thinks he or she is a Christian really is. Now, being a Christian is not a matter of, of going to church on Sunday. Uh, being a Christian is not a matter of reading your Bible or of praying or doing other Christian-y type activities. It's far more than that. Actually, according to the Bible, being a Christian is a tremendous thing. A genuine Christian is someone in whom God dwells by his Holy Spirit. And you see, that divides all of humanity into two. Those who possess the Spirit of God and those who don't. 
And there is no amount of religious activity that can make up for not possessing the Holy Spirit of God. So how do you know that you're a genuine Christian? Well, you know you're a genuine Christian because you have the Holy Spirit. God has set his mark of genuineness on your life. And so if you do have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, rejoice because it's proof that you are a genuine believer. Now, I thought this week long and hard about kind of taking time to think together about how you can know that you possess the Spirit of God. And I'm not going to do that for time's sake this morning. But I do want to say this. If you have questions about whether or not you're truly a believer, the last thing we want you to do is just sit there and remain in angst and worry. Uh, we want to encourage you to talk to someone. You can talk with me. You can talk with one of the other elders, Scott or Ron. Talk with an older, mature brother or sister in the faith who can help you think about your relationship with God. And if you have this seal, this signature of genuineness as a believer, here's the thing. You don't have to live your entire Christian life without assurance. And I know in a room like this, there are probably many of you that struggle with this. Am I really a Christian? Is this really true of me? Well, don't stay there. Now, brother and sister, you've been saved for better things. You've been saved for assurance. Uh, and it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give you assurance. And we want to encourage you to seek him for that grace. Because that is your birthright. Third use I want us to talk about this morning is that seals ensured protection. So think about Pilate. Shortly after Jesus is crucified, they take his body down, they carry him to the tomb, and then they put the stone in front of the tomb. What, what happens? The, the religious leaders and the scribes, they come to Pilate and they say, well, we've got to protect it because his disciples may come and steal his body and, and say that he's been raised, and, and then that would be worse than what he's already done, in, in their opinion. And so what does Pilate do? Well, he gives them uh, some guards, and then he says, and go and seal the tomb. What is that seal? Well, it's another use for this seal. It's to put protection on something. So by sealing this tomb, Pilate was saying, this tomb is under the authority and protection of Rome. And if you break this seal, you will be severely punished for doing so. It's a, another picture of what happens when we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It is that God himself is putting his sign of protection on a person's life. That God himself has taken up residence within a man or woman, boy or girl, who's trusted in Christ. And the glory of it is that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we do not have to be afraid, not because we're so great, not because we're so strong, not because we're so clever. We don't have to be afraid if we possess the Spirit of God because God himself has taken the responsibility to watch over and care for us. So, brother or sister, there is no temptation in your life that by God's power you cannot overcome. You can overcome any temptation by God's grace in your life. And there's no trial in your life that will finally overwhelm you and snatch you out of God's hand. He's too strong. He's too mighty. He has taken up residence in you to protect you and watch over you and keep you. And he will not fail. Oh, do you see what a privilege it is to be sealed by the Spirit of God? You see what a privilege it is that God himself would dwell within us. So that's the first question. What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's to have the Spirit of God take up residence within us, demonstrating that we belong to God, demonstrating that we're genuine believers. 
and demonstrating that we are under the almighty protection of God. Here's a second question we want to ask this morning. When were we sealed with the Holy Spirit? Verse 13 again. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you see that middle part there? explains to us when this occurred, when this happened, when it took place. When a person hears the gospel and believes, puts his or her trust in Christ. In other words, at the very moment of salvation, this great sealing occurs. The Spirit of God takes up residence in him or her, indwells him or her. This sealing is a once-for-all act at the moment of salvation, and the Spirit of God remains in that person until he or she arrives in glory. That's the ministry that you see there. Now, there's a lot we can say, but I want us just to make two kind of observations from this. Notice first that the gospel is the word of truth. I love how Paul talks about the gospel. Look at the way he speaks of the gospel in this passage. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Many people in our culture deny that there is such a thing as absolute truth. It's very vogue in our culture. You hear it all the time. And the idea is that I can have my truth and you can have your truth. And my opinion is as good as yours. Your opinion is as good as mine. And the last thing we want to do is claim that anyone is ultimately right. Well, that's not at all in keeping in step with what the Bible says. Look at the way Paul speaks of the gospel here. He calls it the word of truth, which is to say that it's a sure word. It is to say that it is a true word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the very truth of God. So let me put it as simply as I can. The gospel is true whether or not we believe it. It is not dependent upon our faith to be true. It is the word of truth. It is a true declaration of what God has done for us in Christ. And it's this reality that separates biblical Christianity from other religions that you hear about in the world. I heard Tim Keller put it this way once, and I thought it was very helpful. He he said that other religions offer good advice but Christianity offers good news. And what he meant is that other religions come along and they tell you that if you want God to approve of you, well, then you need to go to this place and you need to pray this prayer and you need to do this thing and then you need to avoid doing this thing. And then if you do those things, well, then God will approve of you. You will be righteous in God's eyes, acceptable to God. So other religions give their opinion on how a person can be made right with God. Christianity is fundamentally different. Christianity is not giving advice. Christianity is making a declaration of what God has done to save. Do you see the difference? Christianity is not saying, hey, guys, go do this and this and this and this and this, and then you'll be okay. Christianity is saying, look at Jesus and look at what he's done. Look at what God has done to rescue sinners. Look at Christ coming into the world, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for sinners. Oh, believe that message. Trust in him, not in yourself, not in what you can do in any way. It's this good news, this positive declaration of truth that God uses to rescue and to save. And that's what you see in this verse. And when these believers heard this true word and accepted it, they were sealed. The Holy Spirit took up residence within them. Friends, what is this gospel? What is this good news? Well, it begins with bad news. 
you read through the Bible, you see the, the Bible actually says some very strong and hard things to us about who we are. The Bible tells us that we were created by a loving and good God. He wanted to have a relationship with us that would be marked by love and by service, that we would live for him, that we would honor him. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created that way, perfect to do that. And yet they rebelled against God's good law. They decided that it would, better for, for them, it would be better for them to rule their own lives and do what they wanted to do as opposed to what God wanted them to do. And that is at the very heart of sin. And we sinned in them. And because we come from them, we were born with that same nature of rebellion against God. So we don't want to live for God. It doesn't feel natural to live for God. What feels natural is to just kind of live this life for me. And so we go through life trying to figure out how to have as much fun or joy or success or whatever we can. In this, and our world is kind of shrunken down to the level of my short existence. There's so many problems with that. One of the problems is that you could never keep that kind of life because you're going to get old and die. That's one problem. The much bigger problem with that is that it's rebellion against God. That's what sin is. It's rebelling against God who is even at this moment sustaining your life. You see, he's giving you breath. He's causing your heart to beat right now. And if you are using all that he's given you to rebel against him, taking his good gifts, well, well friend, you're sinning against God. And the Bible says that sin is serious. The Bible says that sin brings us under God's just judgment. Because God is good, he will punish sin. But praise God that there is this good news. Praise God that there is this word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and it's Jesus. It's what you have to understand. We were never meant to save ourselves by our best efforts. God himself took it upon himself to come into this world as a man, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to live the kind of life that we should have lived, but we failed to live. And then he, in love, laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners, bearing in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. He bore God's wrath so that you don't have to. Friend, if you will turn from your sins and trust in Christ, and that's the message of the gospel. That's the hope that we have. That's this word of truth that we have to share with you this morning. It's offered to you this morning that if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, well, you'll be saved. That word saved is kind of a Christian-y word. What does it mean? It means you'll be forgiven for your sin. You'll be forgiven for the ways that you've taken God's good gifts and used them for yourself. And you just have to know that you're sitting in a room of people that have sinned against God in just that way. But you're also sitting in a room of people who have received God's forgiveness through Jesus. And we would have no greater joy than to sit down with you after the service this morning and just talk with you about what God has done for us in Christ. We'd encourage you to seek someone out and talk with them about, about this salvation, about this word of truth. I want to make one more application, though. Notice, notice. Now, you've just been hearing the word of truth, but notice that hearing is not enough. Look at verse 13. He says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then what? And believed in him. And so you see, there must be a response to this message. And what is that response? Well, friend, you must acknowledge that you are a sinner who has rebelled against God. You must confess your sin. You must agree with God about who you are. And then you must come to him for mercy. And the best advice we can give you is to cry out to God 
Ask him to show mercy to you. Put your trust in Christ and what Christ has done alone. And here's the good news. God is a merciful and gracious Savior who receives sinners. Look to him this morning and be saved. If you want to talk about that, please talk with me after the service. There's a second thing I want us to see from this verse here. It's an observation really for the church. Well, for Christ's fellowship, it's an observation for our church. For people to be saved, we must share the gospel. Do you see that? Do you see the importance of having the gospel be proclaimed so that people can hear it and then respond in faith? We are a church that treasures unashamedly the reality that God is sovereign, that God is big, that God has a plan that he's working out in history, and it's a good one. And it includes the salvation of all that he will draw to himself. We have no qualms with glorying in that truth, and yet we equally glory in the reality that evangelism is necessary because God's plan from eternity past is that his people would proclaim this word of truth, the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God under salvation, and that means Christ's fellowship. We have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel. He's placed us in Williamsburg in 2019 because he wants this church to disseminate the gospel in this community. And not just this community, he wants us to prayerfully seek him for wisdom for how we can take the gospel to the nations. It's the mission we've been given. It's our task of making disciples of those outside of the church. So we've been entrusted with this gospel so that people can hear it, so that they can believe. And, and here's the thing, if we don't proclaim the gospel, what will happen? Nothing. Right? People won't be saved through our witness. Isn't that what Paul says? Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It is the responsibility we have to proclaim the gospel because it is the method and purpose of God that we would proclaim the gospel so that men and women who are far from God would hear that message and they would be saved. And God is good. And as we, by his grace, trust him and proclaim the gospel, we can trust him to bring people to himself and to save them. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time you shared the good news of Jesus with someone who doesn't know Jesus? You know, it's a, it's a tough question. It can be. Some Christians, they, they, they'll live out their entire Christian life, and perhaps it's just because they were kind of brought up in the church, and they, they're kind of always surrounded by the church, and they, they, never, they never actually share Christ with anybody throughout their entire Christian life. And perhaps sitting here this morning, uh, you, you're, you find yourself there that you've never actually shared the gospel with someone. And here's the thing. Satan's been telling you that it's too late. And he's been telling you that too much time has gone by. And he's been telling you that you can't do that. And he's been telling you that evangelism isn't your spiritual gift. As if there's no such thing as spiritual responsibilities. As if there's no such thing as love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the thing. Satan has so many lies. So what should you do if, if you never have? Or, like for many of us, if it's been too long since we've shared the faith, what, what should we do? Well, we should remember who we are. We should remember that we are ambassadors of the King of Kings. 
We should remember that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, that his spirit lives within us and that it's strong, that the spirit is strong and that the spirit of God is able to help us boldly proclaim Christ. I, not too long ago, heard the story of of an older woman uh, who'd been a member of a church for 50 years. I actually knew this woman personally. And I heard the pastor kind of share the story about how she became convicted that she'd never actually shared the gospel. And, and so she called her neighbors and she invited them over to dinner and she just, you know, very intentionally just shared the gospel with them. And, and she was in her 80s when she did this. And what can you say to that? But praise God. Do you think God was up in heaven just kind of looking at her like taking so long? Don't you think he was rejoicing in his grace in her life that caused her to speak forth the gospel? Of course he was. Because God is a gracious king. And what an encouragement it was for this woman to share in her 80s that God had strengthened her to open her mouth. I'm grateful for the way that Matt and Haley took time on Friday and Saturday to help us as a church think about how we could share the good news through gospel storing. We spent a good amount of time talking about that. I thought it was an encouraging and a good time. Grateful for that ministry. The prayer is that God would help us take this responsibility seriously. And he is. And I'm grateful for that. And may he do it more. May he just do it more, because as we proclaim Christ, we can trust God to use it. So when we're resealed, we were sealed at the moment of salvation, when we heard the gospel and believed. There's a third question, more briefly, why does the Holy Spirit indwell believers? Look at your copy of God's word, look at verse 14. He goes on to say, who, referring to the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? to the praise of his glory. So we have seen that this sealing of the Spirit speaks of the Holy Spirit's ministry of taking up residence in the hearts of believers. Why does he do it? What's the purpose? What is God doing in that? Well, we see the answer in verse 14. The Spirit indwells believers as a guarantee of a future inheritance. Guarantee, the word guarantee there, it's from a Greek word, erebone. An airbone, according to the scholars, is this commercial word that spoke of a pledge or a down payment. In other words, when some kind of a transaction was being made, in order to make that transaction valid, an airbone was given, a down payment, a first installment of the future payment for that thing that caused it to be an official transaction. The airbone ensured the rest of the price would be paid. What a beautiful picture. Now think about what we learned in verses 11 and 12. We talked about this inheritance that is waiting for us, this spiritual blessing. How do we know that we are going to inherit this great treasure that we talked about? Well, we know it because the Spirit of God has been given to us as an airbone, as a down payment, as an initial installment of future glory. We said that God himself would be the treasure in that world Now think about the wonder that God himself has guaranteed that treasure by taking up residence in our hearts. John Stott said that in giving the Holy Spirit to us, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but actually giving us a foretaste of it. And notice that the Holy Spirit will not leave us until we gain that inheritance. That's what he says, until we acquire possession of it. And then notice in verse 14, now for the third time, Paul says that all of this is to the praise of God's glory. 
So let me give you another word of encouragement. We've already hinted at it, but let's just say it up front and clearly. Many of us come to church on Sunday morning. If you're like me, you've been in the war all week. There's been battles and struggles and difficulties and trials, and sometimes you come to church and you're just dragging. And you're struggling. And you look good on the outside. But on the inside, you're dying, and it's very easy for us to be scared to death that someone's going to realize that because everyone else looks great, too. And so in a room, so many of us can be just absolutely struggling, and we can wonder, are we really going to make it? You know, if I have to live through another week like last week, how am I going to make it? Well, we'll look at verse 14, circle it if you need to, and understand that God has given you a guarantee in his spirit that you're going to make it. That if you possess the Spirit of God, it is God's word, a promise, God who cannot lie, that you are going to reach heaven. That you are going to see God face to face. That God will complete the good work that he has begun. You know that verse, right? Philippians 1, 6. Memorize it. If you don't, just memorize it. Say it over and over and over. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Be encouraged that you've received this magnificent treasure in the Spirit of God. So we've come now to the end of this study of verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. It's a magnificent passage. It's a passage that teaches us about these spiritual blessings that we have received from God. As we've said, it's also a passage that teaches us who we are. So it doesn't matter ultimately what the world says about us. Trust me, if you're just living in the West now, the world is going to be saying some pretty rough things about us in days ahead. It doesn't matter what the world says about us. It doesn't matter what Satan says to you about you. What matters is what God says. And what does God say? Now look, God says we're chosen. God says we're redeemed. God says we are wise. He says that we are heirs. And he says that we are sealed with the very spirit of God. That is who we are. And we have the privilege of living like it. And then notice that this is a passage that encourages us greatly. Oh, we need encouragement. Is there anything more encouraging than to know that before time began, God the Father chose us for salvation in Christ? And that in the fullness of time, Christ the Son laid down his life on the cross, accomplishing redemption for his people. And that now we have received the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that we will receive the fullness of his salvation. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are blessed. And so it's right for us to say with the Apostle Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's pray.